This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Whenever we sit down to do a radio program, Mr. Millen and I, we generally have a couple things in mind. One is to put something together that might be entertaining and informative to be used today, and, and also to maybe put something down that, you know, will have a good shelf life that you might listen to years from now and still find some value in it. It's been a great pleasure to go back sometimes 10, 12 years, listen to a program and go, that was pretty good. We hope that'll be the case for things we're putting together currently, but I have a feeling that like, you know, yesterday's sports scores or, you know, the weather from a week ago, things are moving so fast right now that a lot of what we're going to have to say today is going to seem pretty quaint in the future. So I think we have to try extra hard today to to do something that's going to stand up to the test of time. And 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 in this instance, the test of time is going to be the months to come in this election year 2020. Here in the United States, there has been a scandalous and catastrophic lack of proper reaction to this pandemic that is going to get tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or more people killed. I'm hoping that listening to this show some years from now will go, well, that was ridiculous. That was a reflection of some mass hysteria going on, but... I don't think that's going to be the case, sadly. We're all doing the best we can with a lot of, well, with a dearth of knowledge in in so many important areas. We just don't know enough to answer some very basic questions. We'll talk about that today. But there are some things we can nail down pretty effectively, and we're going to hammer those. I just got one report from a friend of mine out in the front lines, and we do have a lot of people that are checking in with us that, um, that, you know, are dealing with this on a first-hand basis. More on that to follow. But I received a note this morning suggesting that a study is perhaps indicating that hydroxychloroquine and and azithromycin are are doing some good. We certainly hope so. But yours truly has spent a lot of time looking at the numbers this past week and the weeks before that and have concluded, unfortunately, that This seems to be trending more toward the worst-case scenario, at least here in the United States. Now, if you go to look, you're going to find lots and lots of graphs and lots and lots of charts and lots and lots of data out there talking about how things are going. And we should start off with some good news there. It does appear that the measures being taken in California are slowing our numbers. It may not be completely fair to, to... compare California to New York City. But last time I checked, New York State, and most of the casualties are in New York City, New York State would rank, I think, fifth in the world if it were a separate nation. There is so much to talk about. The punchline for today's show, I think, is going to be, dear listener, that you should start planning for things being very bad, that you will be asked to Social distance yourself and sequester yourself at home probably into June. They're talking now about reevaluating in May, but 
that's four weeks from now. And if you look at where we stand today versus where we stood in the beginning of March, it's a whole new world. I think I'll start with an article from The Guardian by Ed Pilkington and Tom McCarthy writing in New York for The Guardian. This is now a few days old. Starts off as follows. When the definitive history of the coronavirus pandemic is written, the date 20 January 2020 is certain to feature prominently. It was on that day that a 35-year-old man in Washington State, recently returned from visiting a family in Wuhan in China, became the first person in the U.S. to be diagnosed with the virus. On that very same day, 5,000 miles away in Asia, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 was reported in South Korea. The confluence was striking, but there the similarities end. In the two months since that fateful day, the responses to coronavirus displayed by the U.S. and South Korea have been polar opposites. One country acted swiftly and aggressively to detect and isolate the virus and by doing so has largely contained the crisis. The other country dithered and procrastinated, became mired in chaos and confusion, was distracted by the individual whims of its leader, and is now confronted by a health emergency of daunting proportions. Within a week of its first confirmed case, South Korea's disease control agency had summoned 20 private companies to the medical equivalent of a war planning summit and told them to develop a test for the virus at lightning speed. A week after that, the first diagnostic test was approved and went into battle, identifying infected individuals who could then be quarantined to halt the advance of the disease. 357,000 tests later, the country has more or less won the coronavirus war. Last Friday, only 91 new cases were reported in a country of more than 51 million. The U.S. response tells a different story. Two days after the first diagnosis in Washington state, Donald Trump went on air on CNBC and bragged, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming from China. It's going to be just fine. A week after that, the Wall Street Journal published an opinion article by two former top health policy officials. We've often made fun on this program of the editorial pieces that appear in the Wall Street Journal because they are generally so at variance with reality, but not this one. This opinion article by two former top health policy officials within the Trump administration under the headline, Act Now to Prevent an American Epidemic, Luciana Borio and Scott Gottlieb laid out a menu of what had to be done instantly to avert a massive health disaster. Top of their to-do list, work with private industry to develop an easy-to-use rapid diagnostic test. In other words, just what South Korea was doing. It was, however, not until the 29th of February, more than a month later, after that journal article, and almost six weeks after the first case of coronavirus was confirmed in the U.S., that the Trump administration put that advice into practice. Laboratories and hospitals would finally be allowed to conduct their own COVID-19 tests. Those missing four to six weeks are likely to go down in the definitive history as a cautionary tale of the potentially devastating consequences of failed political leadership. Today, 86,000 cases have been confirmed across the U.S. As I'm standing before the microphone right now, the total is actually three times that, about a quarter of a million, pushing the nation to the top of the world's coronavirus league table above even China. 
The U.S. response will be studied for generations as a textbook example of a disastrous failed effort. Ron Klain, who spearheaded the fight against Ebola in 2014, told a Georgetown University panel recently, what's happened in Washington has been a fiasco of incredible proportions. Jeremy Karindik, who led the U.S. government's response to international disasters at USAID from 2013 to 2017, frames the past six weeks in strikingly similar terms. He told The Guardian, We are witnessing in the United States one of the greatest failures of public governance and basic leadership in modern times. In Kondik's analysis, the White House had all the information it needed by the end of January to act decisively. Instead, Trump repeatedly played down the severity of the threat, blamed China for what he called the Chinese virus, and insisted falsely that his partial travel bans on China and Europe were all that it would take to contain the crisis. The piece goes on to note that Trump's travel bans did buy the U.S. a little bit of time, which makes the lack of decisive action all the more curious. William Schaefer, an infectious disease specialist at Vanderbilt University's Medical Center, said, we didn't use that time optimally. We've been playing reluctant catch-up throughout. As Schaefer sees it, the stuttering provision of mass testing put us behind the eight ball right at the start. It did not permit us and still doesn't permit us to define the extent of the virus in this country. I want to note also that an hour before we set up here to start recording, I I got an, an email from someone who's on the front lines who stated that the government has now taken away their ability to test. This is in California, and they therefore do not know exactly who to quarantine. We have, an, we have a secondhand report from Oakland that indicates that doctors are being told that if they speak to the media about what is going on, they will be fired. We have a reliable report from Southern California that at UC Irvine Medical Center, nurses who are actually treating COVID-19 patients are being told that they don't need to wear face masks. But back to the article. In the absence of sufficient test kits, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control initially kept a tight rein on testing, creating a bottleneck. I do believe the CDC was caught flat-footed, was how the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, put it on the 7th of March. They're slowing down the state. Since then, of course, Cuomo's brother, a national commentator, has contracted COVID virus. Although, as we speak, I understand he intends to continue broadcasting his program from home with the virus. Fortunately, he is not one of the sick ones. Senator Rand Paul, by the way, one of, I think, three senators who's tested positive for COVID-19, is apparently doing just fine, showing no symptoms. People think it's a bit ironic that he did vote against the aid package. Back to the article. The CDC's botched rollout of testing was the first indicating the Trump administration was faltering as the health emergency gathered pace. Behind the scenes, deep flaws in the way federal agencies had come to operate under Trump was being ex- were being exposed. In 2018, the pandemic unit in the National Security Council, which was tasked to prepare for national emergencies precisely like the current one, was disbanded. Beth Cameron, senior director of the office at the time it was broken up, wrote in the Washington Post, eliminating the office has contributed to the federal government's sluggish domestic response. Disbanding the unit exacerbated a trend that was already prevalent after two years of Donald Trump, an exodus of skilled and experienced officials who knew what they were doing. 
There's been an erosion of expertise of competent leadership at important levels of government, a former government official told The Guardian. Over time, there was a lot of paranoia and people left and they had a hard time attracting good replacements, the official said. Nobody wanted to work there. It was hardly a morale-boosting gesture when Trump proposed a 16% cut in CDC funding on the 10th of February, 11 days after the WHO had declared a public health emergency over COVID. By way of review, on the 30th of January, as the WHO was declaring a global emergency, Donald Trump said, we only have five people. Hopefully everything's going to be great. On the 24th of February, Trump claimed the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. The next day, Nancy Missonier, the CDC's top official on respiratory disease, took the radically different approach of telling the truth, warning the American people that disruption of everyday life might be severe. Trump was reportedly so angered by the comment and its impact on share prices that he shouted down the phone at Messonier's boss, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. Jeremy Kanindig told The Guardian, Messonier was 100% right. She gave a totally honest and accurate assessment. And for that, Trump angrily rebuked her department. That sent a very clear message about what is and isn't permissible to say. Kondik recalls attending a meeting in mid-February with top Trump administration officials present, which the only topic of conversation wore was the travel bans. That's when he began to despair about the federal handling of the crisis. I thought, holy Jesus, where's the discussion on protecting our hospitals? Where's the discussion on high-risk populations on surveillance so we can detect where the virus is? I knew then the president had set a priority the bureaucracy was following, but it was the wrong priority. So it has transpired. In the wake of the testing disaster has come the personal protective equipment, PPE disaster, the hospital bed disaster, and now the ventilator disaster. Ventilators, literal life preservers, are in dire short supply across the country. When governors begged Trump to unleash the full might of the U.S. government on the critical problem, and it still seems unclear how many the government has, the federal government has stockpiled, Mike Pence referred to 10,000, Trump gave this answer on the 16th of March. In a phrase that will stand beside the 20 January 2020 as one of the most revelatory moments in the history of the coronavirus, he said, respirators, ventilators, all that equipment, try getting it for yourselves. So we got to talk more here about this startling failure to, to provide, well, not just ventilators and, and high-tech solutions to the problem, but low-tech solutions like Gowns, gloves, face masks. Sounding off on this topic a few days ago was Farad Manju, New York Times columnist, who noted that the shortages of protective gear, particularly face masks, had struck him as one of the most disturbing absurdities in America's response to the pandemic. Said Manju, yes, it would have been nice to have had early widespread testing for the coronavirus, the strategy South Korea used. It would be amazing if we can avoid running out of ventilators and hospital space, the catastrophe that has befallen parts of Italy. But neither matters much. In fact, no significant intervention is possible if healthcare workers cannot even come to contact with coronavirus patients without getting sick themselves. He goes on to note that Donald Trump, bizarrely, has so far resisted ordering companies to produce more supplies and equipment. In the case of masks, manufacturers say they 
are moving mountains to ramp up production, and some large companies are donating millions of masks from their own reserves. We know someone in the Sacramento area who went down to see if he could get some masks for himself and was told, well, we might be able to do that for you, but we are donating most of our masks, this is in the construction trade, to hospitals where people are going to need them. And people do need them in spite of what they're telling them down at UC Irvine. A week or two ago, somebody told me that in Italy, 51 doctors have come down with it so far. But in a rather astounding press conference on Sunday, March 28th, Donald Trump accused hospital workers in New York of stealing and possibly selling face masks, quote, out the back door, unquote. Standing in the White House's Rose Garden, the president asked reporters to look into the supposed illegal activity, but provided no evidence to back up his claims, aside from the increased demand for supplies from hospitals swamped by the pandemic. Trump. For years, suppliers have been delivering 10 to 20,000 masks, okay? It's a New York hospital, and it's packed all the time. How do you go from 10 to 20,000 to 300,000? Something's going on, and you ought to look into it as reporters. Where are the masks going? Are they going out the back door? And we, and we have that in a lot of different places, so somebody should probably look into that, because I just don't see from the practical standpoint how that's possible. Note of the Huffington Post, as for masks, they are single-use, and New York Presbyterian Hospital, for instance, employs 20,000 people. Asked by a reporter to explain his comments more fully, Trump said, I don't think it's hoarding. I think it's worse than hoarding. He added, I don't know, I don't know. I think that's for other people to check out. I mean, not like he has resources to investigate things. Also on the 28th, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, estimated an interview with CNN the pandemic could cause between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths in the United States. Hours before we started this broadcast, I read that Donald Trump has cited that Imperial College of London study that shows there could be 2.2 million deaths in the United States, which he then parlayed off the 200,000 figure and concluded that our actions are going to save two million lives. Now, there may be one or two politically-minded people out there listening to this who are saying, why is he bagging on Trump? Will he just give us some useful information here? A week ago, when I sent some caustic remarks about the lack of presidential response, I received an email back saying, give it a rest. I'm not interested in people's political opinions. I responded with our favorite quote from the great Athenian Pericles, who once said, Just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. But I think this lack of response is starting to get the attention of people who are normally inclined to support Trump. I can't say that the East Bay Times slash Mercury News is particularly right-wing, but I also would say they haven't been as hard on Trump in the past few years as they might have been. Mercury editor N. Clendaniel sounded off on this very topic in an editorial, saying it's inexcusable that President Donald Trump has failed to use the Defense Production Act to expedite the production of N95 masks and other protective equipment for health care workers. The editorial goes on to note that private companies, big and small, are doing their part by donating masks to hospitals. Individuals with sewing skills are churning out masks too but most of them lack the materials to make the heavy-duty virus-blocking N95 masks needed by health care workers. He notes, the generosity and efforts are commendable, but 
we're now seeing that we can't rely on private businesses and individuals alone to address the current and future needs. We reported on last week's program that the Trump White House was objecting to a price of $1 billion for 80,000 ventilators. This in the wake of a bailout plan of several trillion dollars. Oh, by the way, we reported last week that uh, Trump went on the Sean Hannity program to suggest that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was exaggerating when he said that he needed 30,000 additional ventilators. He said, I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you go into major hospitals, sometimes they'll have two ventilators. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying that we can order 30,000. Two days later, when he was questioned by a reporter during a news briefing as to this statement that New York didn't need 30,000 ventilators, Trump replied, I never said that, adding, that's a nasty question. Anyway, we're going on and on about Donald Trump because it should be clear to listeners by now that anything this guy says should be taken with a grain of salt. And we'll repeat our previous assertion that his inaction and counterproductive behavior is going to get tens of thousands of people killed. People you're going to know. I hope, when I contemplate the people I know on the front lines who may die because of this stupidity, I just feel like recycling that that old joke from the 60s when Lyndon Johnson was dragging the nation further and further into the quagmire of Vietnam, bumper stickers emerged saying, Lee Harvey Oswald, where are you now that we need you? Now, Grant, that's a horrible sentiment, but I understood then why people might say it. Oh, and just a very brief aside from COVID-19 news. Apparently, Bob Dylan has released a something like a 17-minute long song about the murder of John F. Kennedy. I have not heard it myself, but I understand that he, Dylan displays a great deal of knowledge about, well, some of the, let's call it subterfuge in the case. We look forward to taking a look at that in some future program when we're not immersed in COVID. By the way, I'm holding here in my hand an article from the New York Times about how the U.S. tried to build a new fleet of ventilators and how that mission failed, and that's worth talking about, but I don't want to bog down in that. We're going to reserve that for a future discussion and instead jump to an op-ed piece that appeared in the East Bay Times by Julia Shlaletsky, described as a Harvard-trained bioscientist, and I wish she'd left that part out, who's the director of the H. Wheeler Center for Emerging and Neglected Diseases at UC Berkeley. Said the UC Berkeley bioscientist, With President Trump's signature on the enormous $2.2 trillion stimulus package to provide relief to about anyone who is losing business or income during the crisis, one thing is notably absent from the discussion. Research funding. Despite the strong groundswell of researchers and scientists coming together to innovate and provide lasting solutions to this crisis, I'm not aware of a laboratory that has actually received federal funding for COVID-19 research. We are 11 weeks into this aggressive, rapidly spreading pandemic, but we have not received funds to study transmission dynamics or the biology of the virus or to develop badly needed vaccines, therapeutics, or rapid diagnostics. Academic research is fueled by the grant system, a notoriously slow and bureaucratic way of paying for salaries, reagents, and supplies administered through the NIH and other government institutions. While with a lot of fanfare, 
quote, rapid emergency funding for COVID-19, end quote, was announced, and legislation has already passed allocating funding to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and others. We are left to discover somewhere in the fine print that we don't qualify or that the amount funded is very small or that the rapid turnaround for review alone can take up to 60 days or extensive preliminary data is needed on the project, data that no one could generate because this virus wasn't known three months ago. Funding for COVID-19 diagnostic testing is supposed to be provided by the CDC, yet that money is nowhere to be seen leaving us to order supplies for patient testing yet again with philanthropic donations and recruit volunteers to collect samples and run machines. The National Science Foundation is proud to have so far released 10 small COVID-19 grants for the entire nation. $2 million worth. Let's compare that to the $58 billion planned to be allocated to airlines alone. She goes on to note, we urgently need centralized, unbureaucratic seed funding distributed directly through universities that allow immediate action on COVID-19 projects so that no time is wasted writing proposals and waiting for funding emergency decisions in this rapidly spreading outbreak. Several months later, we could assess which projects do well and which should be discontinued. This model would allow us to become more innovative, enable us to start a full-blown attack on COVID-19 without delay, with a minimum amount of waste and the possibility of a large return in investment. All this could happen on pennies on the dollar relative to the stimulus proposed for airlines and hotels. Instead of just putting out fires everywhere, we need to fix the root cause of the problem and catch the arsonist. Strong words, words to outrage a person. But you know, if by now you're not a bit outraged, you haven't been paying close enough attention. This was the response of the President of the United States a few days ago. I've been briefed on every contingency you could possibly imagine. Many contingencies, a lot of positive, different numbers, all different numbers, very large numbers, and some small numbers too. It's really working out, and a lot of good things are going to happen. And I want to thank... Martin, for reminding us of the press statement by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on the 7th of February. And I quote, This week, the State Department has facilitated the transportation of nearly 17.8 tons of donated medical supplies to the Chinese people, including masks, gowns, gauze, respirators, and other vital materials. These donations are a testament to the generosity of the American people. The United States is and will remain the world's most generous donor. We encourage the rest of the world to match our commitment. Working together, we can have a profound impact to contain the growing threat. A lot of people have pointed out, and we too have pointed out uh, on this program, that, you know, when this is all settled and done, we need to evaluate where we spend our money in this country. Yes, the military-industrial complex gets, let's just say, more than its share. And so far, there appears to be no evidence that a multi-billion dollar aircraft carrier has been much good at protecting us from the threat of a virus. And how about this little item to add to the mix? This is from the New York Times. The captain of a U.S. aircraft carrier deployed to the Pacific Ocean has pleaded with the Pentagon for more help as a coronavirus outbreak aboard his ship continues to spread. Military officials said dozens of sailors have been infected. In a four-page letter first reported by the San Francisco Chronicle, Captain Brett E. Crozier laid out the dire situation unfolding aboard the warship the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which has more than 4,000 crew members. 
He described what he said were the Navy's failures to provide him with the proper resources to combat the virus by moving sailors off the vessel. We are not at war, Crozier wrote. Sailors do not need to die. If we do not act now, we are failing to properly take care of our most trusted asset, our sailors. The carrier is currently docked in Guam. All right, at this time, we need to take a short break, during which I may take a dose of my homemade hand sanitizer orally. We will do what we can to be a little less political in the second half today, but that, you know, that's hard to do. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Don't don't go away. Don't go away. 